Now, I wonder if you were several of the 30 million people who heard these words at the funeral that took place on Monday. The Archbishop of Canterbury said these words. People of loving service are rare in any walk of life. Leaders of loving service are still rarer. But in all cases, those who serve will be remembered when those who cherish power and privileges are long forgotten. The pattern for all who serve God, famous and obscure, respected or ignored, is that death is the door to glory. Great words from the Archbishop of Canterbury, speaking of Her Majesty, but making the general comments about those who serve and love the Lord Jesus, known or unknown, will be remembered because death is the doorway to glory. One of the reasons that Her Majesty stuck out like a sore thumb in the modern world that is obsessed with self, obsessed with self-aggrandizement, self-obsession, self-realization, is that she lived a life of sacrificial service. And she swam against the tide of self by living a life that's all about what this passage is all about. People in Rooted, it's about one word, humility. Humility. This passage from the central section of the book of Philippians is all about humility. Paul is trying to uh, arm a people for suffering. For suffering as they own the name of King Jesus. We're in this book 2,000 years ago. Paul, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, planted a church in Philippi. That's where the name of the book comes from, Philippians. And we've seen that Paul is banged up. He's he's locked up in jail and he's aimed, uh, or rather, he's jailed to... um, with a shackle to a strong-armed, massive Roman soldier who has limited his dignity and his status. Privacy is alien to him. He's with him all the time. And yet he writes a letter to a church in Philippi to encourage them. He wants to prepare them. He wants to warn them. Where do I get that from? Chapter 1, verse 27 to verse 30. Notice some key words as he wants to warn the church for what is to come. There are three sections in this middle part of the book of Philippians. And and they're up on the screen, I trust. He wants to prepare the church for opposition that's going to come their way from people outside of the church. That's in verses 27 to 30. And then he wants to prepare the Christians for opposition that's going to happen from inside the church. And then having done those two things in this middle section of the book of Philippians, he wants to encourage them, chapter 2, verse 12 to 18, to, to work out their salvation, to live out the joy of the gospel of what it means to know King Jesus. But this is the opposition they're about to face. Eyes down, chapter 1, verse 27, you might see these words. Whatever happens, says the Apostle Paul, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Then he, later on he says in verse 27, stand firm in one spirit. Why do you say stand firm? Because verse 28, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. 
In other words, opposition is coming. Why is it coming? Verse 27 to verse 29, it's been granted to you that you will suffer for Jesus. Why? Verse 30, because you have this privilege. You're going to face the same struggles that I had. So here we have this church that's the apple of Paul's eye. He doesn't write to them about an issue with their doctrine, what they believed or what they said or what they taught. But he is laser guided in his words to say, suffering is about to hit. It might come from the outside. It's certainly going to come from the inside. And I want you to know, not the, uh, the armor or the strategy of who is going to be your foe. I want you to understand the depths of your own heart. I want you to understand how you work. What I'm going to describe to you is it does not just need a band-aid or a sticking plaster. You need surgery because the battle is going to come from within. That's the source of struggle from verses 1 to 5 and following in chapter 2. I want you to stand together as you face opposition from the outside, end of chapter 1, but it's also going to come from the inside. That's chapter 2. Because if it's not dealt with, this heart condition, this source of strife and division is absolutely deadly to every church. So I need to be laser guided, like a laser in the hand of a surgeon removing cancerous cells. It's not just Paul and it's not just the Christian message. You can ask uh, any religious leader. You can ask anyone who studied the philosophies of the world. And they all say, Everybody fights, regardless of creed or tribe or age or stage of life, regardless whether you live in a, a slum or on the downs in a kind of respected uh, security. Homes are the source of hurt and shame and division because there's something in the human heart, regardless of your postcode or country or age of life or piece of history that you inhabit that's prone for division ask any religious leader any philosophy student the human heart is brilliant at harming the other it can be with words that are weaponized it can be homes that are divided or shattered because of decisions that are made human beings have a profound propensity to fight to hurt to wound even to kill and the Bible says there is such a deep issue in your heart that unless the surgeon removes these cells, unless your heart is rewired in its affections and your mind is restructed to the mind of the Lord Jesus Christ, you still have the capacity to wound, harm, heal, kill and divide. And so if you're about to face a period of suffering, church in Philippi, if you're not aware of this, you will not be able to stand. And so Paul says... Let's get to work. Don't be ignorant about the cancer in your heart. Don't be ignorant about the diagnosis that I need to make on your soul. And so let's get to work. It requires the correct diagnosis. And that's what Paul does in chapter 2. And it begins in verses 2 and into verse 3. Let's look at those as we think about the diagnosis of the human heart. I mean, why do people fight? Why do people kill? Why do people boast? Why do people steal? I didn't mean that to rhyme. Forgive me. Look at these verses. Verse 2. Paul says, chapter 2, verse 2, Be like-minded. Have the same love. 
And then he contrasts it to verse 3, just the next sentence. He says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Now, there are two incredibly rich and dense words in verse 3. I think even the order is important, as the Apostle Paul wrote, wrote this, actually. The first word, uh, selfish ambition, is about the symptom. And then you get to the real root with this term, vain conceit. Verse 3, do nothing out of selfish ambition. That's a, a fancy Greek word that is erytheia. That means hyper-fighting. There's a difference, isn't there, between fighting to live. But then there's the person who lives to fight. And there's all the difference in the world. You fight because you have to. You fight because you want to and you enjoy it. Paul's saying there is a spirit of rivalry in your heart and in every human heart that has a spirit of hyper-fighting that doesn't fight over truth or principle, but they fight. The human heart loves to fight because it becomes personal or you make it personal. Now, confession is good to the soul. Chris very helpfully led us into confession. Let me confess to you. The amount of times our kitchen has witnessed a, uh, a, a personal slander interpreted by me from the lips of another and I lose sight of the person and it's all about winning the war, I would not care to tell you how many times that has happened. I'm ashamed of it. You lose sight of the person you love and it comes about keeping score and winning the battle, regardless the cost. And gee whiz, do my heels go in deep. That's what Paul's getting at here. At that point, I am living to fight. I'm exhibiting this behavior, which is selfish ambition. It's hating the other person, even if there's a ring on their finger. Because you lose sight of the person you love and cherish and nurture because it becomes about keeping score and who has the last word wins. And I'm ashamed of that. And here is Paul saying, be aware of this is the symptom from a root in your heart. This is what caused fights. This is what caused division and strife. But hang on, you said, this is the church in Philippi. Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, man, they had their doctrine upside down. They were an absolute sham. He wrote to the church in Galatia, took them to town for what they believed wrongly. This is the church that he loves. This is the church that he's so proud of. This is the church that he speaks of with an effervescent encouragement and enthusiasm, saying, I love you, rejoice in the Lord, I love you, I'm so proud of you, I'm always thinking about you. But this is the church that he writes to to say, you might be the best church that I've planted, the healthiest church that I know, and therefore you need to be very on guard against the root in your heart. Because it divides the best churches on the outside and it divides the worst churches as well. Watch out for the spirit of rivalry from verse 3. But then there's the second word. After a selfish ambition, there's another fancy word, which is a conceit. The older authorized standard version that we heard on, on Monday with all the these and thous. It talks about vain glory, empty glory. There's another fancy word called uh, kenodoxia. Doxia is the word for glory, weightiness, heaviness. So in uh, some churches you have the doxology said at the end of a service. That means the glory word, the weighty word at the end that the, 
the vicar wants you to go out remembering. Well, this is kenodoxia. This is empty glory, vain conceit. And you can translate it to glory hunger. So don't be selfish in your ambition as you mix with people. But also, don't look for empty glory. That's what Paul's saying. We're all hungry for glory. So, so don't do anything out of your hunger for glory. Because that's got no place in the church, says Paul. Suffering from the outside, verse 27 to 30 of chapter 1. But this is just, if not more, dangerous, says Paul, because it's in your heart. And it's how you work. Paul is saying and reminding us that human beings, me, you, all of the human race, are hungry for glory. We're hungry for a sense of permanence. We're hungry to not be left on the sidelines to be part of the team. We're hungry never to be overlooked, but to be remembered. We are rejected when no one remembers our name because we sense that we don't matter anymore. There's a weightlessness to us and we long to be weighty and significant and important. I think it's C.S. Lewis that said, the worst thing for a human is not to be hated. The worst thing for a human is to be ignored, overlooked, looked through. You know, you're talking to someone, but actually they're looking above you to the next person that really matters. Then you feel that sense of weightlessness. They're not listening to what I'm saying. They've already moved on. That means I don't matter to them. How do I become a person that matters? How do I become a person who's the first name on the team sheet? How come I got overlooked for that promotion? Why don't people notice how hard I'm working? I'm going to work harder because I want to be a person of substance and to be noted and valued. No one wants to be on the sidelines. No one wants to be part of a community who've forgotten your name. And where does that come from? Because we all have a deep sense of glory hunger and we'll do anything to get it. We're so afraid that we won't be noticed we're so afraid that we'll be overlooked or bypassed that we want to create our identity so that people know who we are. We choose our clothes. We make choices. We use our words. We make life decisions, big ones and little ones. We spend our resources and our best energies and our best years to be a person of substance so that no one will forget our name. But with the sands of time, you will be forgotten. At least that's what Taylor Swift wants to avoid. Taylor Swift has uh, sold quite a few albums. If you don't know who she is, don't worry, but ask someone who's under 40. They will know. Ask someone in Rooted, they sure will know. Am I right? I think so. This is what she said in a fascinating documentary called Miss Americana that I watched six months ago. She sold 114 million albums at least. She's worth a ton of cash. And she's very insightful about some of her lyrics and her human condition. She says this, For someone who's built their whole belief system on getting people to clap for you, the whole crowd booing is a pretty formative experience. That was like a sort of a, she says like a lot, that was like sort of a catalyst for a lot of psychological paths that I went down. It was fueled by not feeling like I belonged there. I'm only here because I worked harder and I'm nice to people like I can't change what's going to happen to me but I can control what I write 
where I was like, I'm going to prove myself. I'm going to make sure people know I deserve to be here. Now that is very revealing. She stood in uh, stadiums with tens of thousands of people screaming her name. Loads of money in the bank. Millions of records or MP3 files sold. And yet she's saying, I'm going to make sure people know I deserve to be here. She feels a weightlessness with all that uh, attribution of praise and renown, and she says it's not enough. Madonna, I've used this before, it's a really famous, this is not Kylie Minogue, she's got a Kylie Minogue t-shirt on. This is Madonna, or Madge as I call her. She wrote a very famous article in Vanity Fair where she revealed the same truth. She says, I have an iron will, and all my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I'm always struggling with that fear. My drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre. And that's always pushing me, pushing me. Because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove that I'm somebody. My struggle has never ended and it probably never will. They're saying the same thing. She, she sold 300 million records. And both artists are saying, for all the trappings of Applause and renown, it's not enough. There's an empty void in my heart. I'm hungry for glory and permanence and worth and approval. And all the applause is just not enough. And so I'm going to try and get some more. And still they'll be sold short. She's terrified of being ignored, Madonna. I'm just mediocre. And so I'm going to push myself so that I prove myself to people. The Bible says they're looking in the wrong places for glory. But we do all hunger for glory. And it's at the top of the ladder and it's in the top of the stratosphere. These two musicians are wealthy. They have status and renown. And yet the Bible says that longing comes from sin. That longing comes from a sin where we chose to exchange the glory of God, the majesty of God, the satisfying renown and smile of God, the approval of God that gives us worth and weightiness when we understand who we are in relationship to our maker. And we said we would exchange it, not for God-centered living, but for self-centered living. And when that happens, that's when the trouble begins. And so we long for selfish ambition, verse 3. We long for vain conceit. And Paul says, watch out for those things. Once you matter to God, once you were the apple of his eye, and then you chose to say, shove off God. I want to live according to my rules and in my way. You chose to ignore his good purposes for your life. You chose to say, your smile no longer satisfies me. I want to go my own way. And because of that, rather than living an eternal life of joy and satisfaction in him, the wages of sin is death. And the whole cosmos was then subject to decay. We became our own masters. We began to lose our own glory, focusing not on God-centered living, where there is wealth and reserve, I don't mean money, but wealth and reserve and renown, and we chose to exchange that for ourselves. And what does Jesus say in Matthew 7 to people who still choose to go astray, away from God-centered, God-satisfied, living Jesus says in the future in a day to come he will say I don't know you depart from me we will be overlooked but by the only eyes that really count 
So this is terrible catch-22 scenario for Madonna, for me, I put myself in the same standing there, for Taylor Swift and for you as well. The more we know we lack glory and wealth and renown and worth and permanence, the more we try and manufacture it ourselves. The more records we try and sell, the more stadium we try and fill. We just have to work harder. We can push ourselves and we push ourselves. We just, the, the career ladder is there. I'm going to get to the top and then I'll be able to prove my dad wrong who never said he loved me. If I'm a great parent, then I'll be able to show my mum this is how you should have cherished me and all those different ways. The more we try and f- f- manufacture more self-glory, the more we long for it and the more that people will treat us that we're not glorious. That's not a band-aid, is it? That's not a sticking plaster. That's deep biblical analysis. That's what's going on in my heart and yours too. That's the diagnosis and the doctor will see you now. (laughs) But that's not the end because here's the remedy. If that's how deep surgery our hearts need, praise God, there's also a remedy. And it begins in verse 5 of chapter 2 of Philippians. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. People can say, I know the issue with fighting. I know the issue with Ukraine and Russia. I know the the issues in northern Nigeria. It's religious. Religion is, is just so damaging. I know what's wrong in this situation at work. I know what's wrong with the situation in the home. We need better role models. You need better education. And it just doesn't work. But there is a remedy that's outside and there is a change that needs to happen on the inside. Now, look at verse 5 again. Let this mind be in you, which also was in Christ Jesus. And then we point forward to verse 6 and following that we didn't read today that we'll look at in depth next week. But this is what it says. Look down with me. Though he was in the form of God, though he was in the very nature of God, though he had all the glory of God, speaking of Jesus, what does Paul say? He emptied himself. He emptied himself and he became a human. God took on flesh to deal with our greatest need. He became the lifeguard to rescue us from us drowning in our sin and rebellion. The Bible tells us that Jesus Christ, he embraced willingly your worst nightmare. Your worst nightmare of being overlooked and looked through and not remembered and not valued Jesus took all the hate, all the things you fear the most, and Jesus voluntarily walked into that nightmare. Isaiah 53 says he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He, Jesus, was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, He was despised and we esteemed him not. So Jesus Christ came and he came as a really regular looking man. Nothing special, no trappings of glory or renown or or, or just royalty. That's what we're told, he's a regular looking guy. He was a poor man as he entered the world. He was a weak man as he entered the world. But he came voluntarily into the world to meet my greatest need and yours too. And how did the world respond? He was utterly rejected. He was utterly rejected by the people who knew him and they literally ran away from him. 
But his father, surely his father would give him a warm embrace. His father utterly rejected him too and said, I don't know you. My father, my father, my God, my God, where are you? And his father turned his back on his son. In a cosmic way, Jesus experienced the very thing that we are most afraid of from our year 7, 8, 9, 10 and our neighbours and friends. Rejection, the cold shoulder, the shut door. There's a place in the rock opera, Jesus Christ Superstar, where Pilate is mocking Jesus. Well, where is this Jesus Christ? And Pilate in the opera looks at Jesus and says these words in a song. Oh, so this is Jesus Christ. I am really quite surprised. You look so small. No king at all. There's nothing special to look at Jesus. And he became utterly small for you. That's the gospel. All his glory contracted to a span. Incomprehensibly, God made man. That's what Christmas is all about. That's what the gospel is all about. He's about to die for you in your place. And he prays about to be utterly cosmically ignored. And yet he thinks of you and the glory of his father. John 17 says this, Father, I want them to have the glory that I had with you before the world began. There it is. Jesus emptied himself of his glory so that you and I could be filled to the brim. We could be filled to the brim. Do you know what it means to become a Christian even today? It means to follow Jesus. It means to admit your neediness and to see his sufficiency, to understand that we're all actually weightless. We all long for permanence. But you can go to God through Jesus this morning and say, I long to trust you. I'm sorry for the way I've lived. I see my weightlessness and I see that I long for permanence and nothing in this world can do it. Golly, if Madonna can't buy it and Taylor Swift hasn't been able to earn it, then who can? It's because it's not there in this world unless you consider the person Jesus Christ. If you can say, there's no righteousness of my own and so I throw myself on your mercy, then even this morning you can become a Christian. You'll be filled to the brim with significance and understanding as you're clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. He lived the life you should have lived. He was ignored by his father on the cross. He died the death you should have died so that you could no longer be alienated but brought in. It's the gospel in a nutshell. And that's all outside. And so what should happen on the inside? Verse 5. Now have this mind in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. When you bring Jesus into your life, when he enters into your life by his grace and mercy, you are experiencing a living argument in your head. It's not that you're experiencing a traumatic personality disorder, but you do have a living person in your heart that argues with your internal monologue and narrative. Your self-understanding changes. And he says, by his spirit, through his word, see how much I love you. See what I've done for you. See about your glorious future. You understand the past, but it's 
completely forgiven. I know the depths of your heart and I love you the same, says the song. It's a living argument in your heart. He became so small, no king at all, and he did it for you. That's the truth of the gospel. Look at verse 4. It says, look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. There's a wonderful balance there. It doesn't say you only look to the interests of others, so you never look after yourself. It doesn't say that. It does say you mainly look at the interests of others. So you're not thinking less of yourself, you're thinking of yourself less. That's the balance. Well, Jesus put it this way Consider the lilies of the field, consider the birds of the air. If your Father cares and provides for them, then how much more does He care, love? value, accept, approve you. If you understand that, then you can take it when people slight you. If you understand that, you can be the one that says sorry first and moves forward when there's conflict in a home or a school setting. You can not get upset by the little snubs. You can overlook the little slights. You can put your hand out and say, can we talk? Because you know your value is not in how other people view you. People have got that bit smaller, but God's got that bit greater in your mind's eye. It's this living argument in your heart. And Paul says, if you don't do that, the church will not be able to stand. But if you understand how your heart works, then the church can remain united by recognizing this propensity for pride in our spirits. Seeing that we need surgery asking God to humble us under his mighty hand so that, verse 2, we might be like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. See those together words? It's not speaking individually, it's speaking corporately. Not looking at our own interests, but also thinking about the interests of other people. It happens when we take on the mind of Christ, verse 5, that rewires our heart's affections, which means... We think of others more than ourselves because it's all about humility and living a life of sacrificial service.